Let's pray together. Father in, Father in heaven, we thank you for another good morning. Thank you for Sundays. We thank you, God, that you've brought us to the place now where we hear the word preached. Oh, God, we pray that you would increase our appetite for it. We know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And Father, we believe here today that this is your word, and would you teach us and instruct us? God, we do pray that we would understand life. Oh, Father, help us to not fail at life, but that, that we would understand that life's about you. We ask, God, for your help in this. And so today, through the word, would you speak to us? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would, turn in the Bible to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. If you didn't bring a Bible, you can use the Bible there in front of you. It's uh, page 920. Page 920 there in the Pew Bible. Mark chapter 2. We're looking at a well-known, familiar passage. You know, one of the great things about us walking through the Bible like we are with this Gospel of Mark, which we're going to be in for quite some time is that you get to learn all the stories, you know. I, I think there are going to be many weeks here where you think, wow, I've never, never heard that one before. And, and, and many you will remember, and you'll, you'll, hopefully you will remember them forever, and the Word of God is growing on you. But today's passage in Mark chapter 2 is where Jesus heals a paralytic, a man who is paralyzed because his friends bring him to Jesus. There's all types of good stuff going on in this passage here in Mark chapter 2, and, and, and it's one that you're going to remember. It's the one where they bring him through the roof. If you've ever heard that story before, I'm sure you've never forgotten it. They could not get their friend to Jesus, so they take him through the roof, literally through the roof. And so you're going to like this passage, and it's just one of the many strengths of us walking through the Bible is that you come upon passages you've never read before, and then they become memorable to you, and I hope that is the case today. Mark has already been showing us just how dynamic Jesus is. He is the man and he is the God. Jesus is the man and Jesus is the God, as you can see as you're reading through the Gospels. He is the God-man, if you will. And Mark is wanting us to really get that. We've already seen him heal a demon-possessed man. We've already seen him heal somebody who has a disease. Jesus can do whatever he wants to do. And yet we will see that again today in this passage as he is doing his ministry, yet he is encountered by the faith of these people, and, and, and yet we see the authority, if you will, of Jesus. The authority Last week we saw somebody baptized, and before every baptism I will quote to us the Great Commission from Matthew chapter 28. And in the Great Commission, Jesus' final words before uh, the Gospel of Matthew ends and shortly before he ascends up into heaven, Jesus says that he has all authority in heaven and on earth. If you're here today and you're wanting to understand life, you need to bow yourself down to Jesus Christ God Almighty. He has authority over everything. All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to him. For you to not be bowed down and following the one who has all authority, you are to be wrong and going in the wrong direction. And we will see that yet again today through the way Jesus deals with this paralyzed man. Look with me at Mark chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 12. Mark chapter 2, 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. 
And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. He was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying we never saw anything like this Jesus creates in the regular old people that are there in the religious leaders that are there in the crippled man that was there Jesus creates a response that says, never, never. And if you're here today, you are either in one of two positions. You either have seen Jesus work like this in your heart, or you've never seen Jesus work like this in your heart. And I pray that today, through us walking through this passage, you would say, I see Jesus. I see Jesus for who he is. I want to follow three points today. The first is the crowd. The second is the cripple. And the third is the critic. The crowd, the cripple, and the critic. We will see what Jesus says to the crowd, what Jesus says to the cripple, and what Jesus says to the critic. So let's begin with the crowd. The setting here is that he had returned to Capernaum after some days. Jesus is now back at this town called Capernaum here in Israel after some days. And it was reported that he was at home. By now, the word was going around. We've already seen crowds and people gathering. We've already seen that he's been going everywhere, healing and teaching and doing all of that. We've already seen that. And now it's reported where he's at. Okay, he's now he's gone to Capernaum. Okay, he's at this house. Okay, here's where he is. And people are starting to get the word, and he's back at Capernaum. But I want to say a few things about Capernaum first, as I got to thinking about. Uh, in Matthew, you don't have to turn there. In Matthew chapter 4, we have the temptations of Jesus. You're familiar with that. Jesus is out in the wilderness. He's been fasting 40 days. The devil comes to him, tempts him, and all of that. When he resists the temptation, the devil flees from him. It says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 13, And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. Jesus, right after the temptations, coming out of the wilderness, looking for a place to live, beginning his ministry, goes to Capernaum. Here at Mark chapter 2, that's where we find him. But I want to tell you another passage that talks about Capernaum. Mark chapter 11, uh, sorry, Matthew chapter 11, verses 23 and 24, Jesus says this, And you, Capernaum, 
Will you be exalted to heaven? Will you be brought down to Hades? For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Jesus is now speaking to Capernaum as an unrepentant city in Matthew chapter 11. Which is going to be interesting for us now here in Mark chapter 2 because we're at the beginning. In Matthew chapter 11 we have... We have Jesus preaching to Capernaum saying there's a problem there. You people are unrepentant. You have heard that God says turn from your sins, but you have not turned from your sins. And this is a big problem, and he's, an, he's, he's pronouncing a judgment upon them because they will not repent. Well, here at our passage today in Mark chapter 2, we have that he is in Capernaum, that same place. This is where he's doing ministry. So if you put those together, you have Jesus in Capernaum with a big crowd of people, and he is ministering to them, but they're not buying it. They're not believing. And that's what I mean by the crowd. Look what it says. It was reported that he was at home, verse 2, and many were gathered together, a lot of people, a big crowd, it uses the word many, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. You've seen this before. You've seen a place be so crowded that you can't even get inside. This is the case of this home where Jesus is. There are so many people there, so many have gathered, not because they were invited, but simply because Jesus is there. And that you can't even get there because of the crowd. Not even at the door. And so one would ask, well, what was Jesus doing there? What was Jesus going to do with the crowd? Did he send them away? What did he do? Did he entertain them? Did he start to juggle or hula hoop or tell jokes or entertain? No. The Bible tells us, Mark tells us very clearly what he's doing. He was preaching the word to them. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 15, it says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We see that Jesus' coming was fulfilling the plan of God. Now is the time, and he is proclaiming, verse 14, the gospel of God to them. And the gospel of God is telling them to repent of their sins and believe in the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. And so the crowd finds out where he's at, and they gather the house. They clog the doorway. Nobody else can get there. What's Jesus going to do? Hey, no-brainer. He's going to preach the word to them. Jesus is preaching the word to them. If you look down at verse 4, it goes on and it says that these people could not even get near to him because of the crowd. And you have the word there, crowd. As I was studying, I saw that this word crowd is, is very common to Mark. And even before chapter 10, he uses the word crowd 40 times. Mark uses the word crowd 40 times in the first 10 chapters to let us know that people were gathering around Jesus. And never is the word crowd used in a way that said, hey, they believed or hey, they were worshiping. It just shows that there were a lot of people there. And if there was any significance to what the crowd was doing, it was often prohibiting the ministry of Jesus as we saw last week in chapter 1, verse 45 where the man went out and told everybody and there were so many crowds and it prevented him from being able to move on. So we see that there is a, is a, is a crowd here. J.C. Ryle, the late Puritan, speaking on the crowd coming to hear Jesus preach the word, says, We see in these verses what great spiritual privileges some persons enjoy and yet make no use of them. What great privileges some people enjoy, spiritual privileges, and yet they make no use of them, he says. 
He then points out the passage that I read to you from Matthew chapter 11 that all of these people who had the the, the, the eyewitness chance to be at a home hearing Jesus preach the word to them by chapter 11 in Matthew are now an unrepentant people. They've heard Jesus preach, but they don't believe Jesus. They've heard Jesus say, follow me for forgiveness of sins, but they don't want to follow him. Yet they want to gather and listen to him, but they don't want to be identified with him. And so in Matthew chapter 11, he is preaching to them judgment. Woe to you, Capernaum, for not repenting of your sins and following me. Jesus then picks up a problem. And so Ryle is pointing out that this is a problem when we see here that people have great spiritual privileges. They get to gather at a home with Jesus, wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't it be nice to go to a small group Bible study one night in a home where Jesus is just sitting there in the lazy boy with the word of God open saying, well, well turn with me to the book of Romans and, and let me explain to you. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't it be so much better than the preaching at First Baptist Fairdale? be outstanding. They had that great privilege and yet, and yet, they were not moved by it. Imagine the amount of people like us who are here and yet even last night were embarrassed or ashamed to align ourselves with what Jesus says. Imagine how often we would rather willingly turn our back on Jesus and live in our sins than to obey him. This is what he's talking about. The very people crowding the home to hear him speak are not committed to following him. This is often the case with crowds. Ryle goes on to say what a problem this is. He says, nothing in fact, listen to this because this is us, seems to harden man's heart so much as to hear the gospel regularly and yet deliberately prefer the service of sin in the world. In other words, if you are committed to going to church and hearing the Bible taught, but you don't let it change you or it doesn't change you, then what that is, he says, nothing else more creates a hardened heart, a heart that I don't care, a heart that I'm not going to change. Hey, I'm just going to be me. And we have a big problem of people who want to go to church or want to hear the Bible or, or, or want to even read the Bible, but they don't want to be changed by it. He says, nothing in fact seems to harden your heart more than being that way. Another commentator, Edwards, goes on to say that the truth that Jesus is proclaiming to them is the same truth that Jesus embodies. This, from our perspective, is in many ways why the crowds were coming. Because what they were hearing that he was doing was inconsistent with what he is saying. They had never seen anybody do those things, and they had never seen anybody say those things. How much better is it when you have the man doing it is also the man saying it. The great consistency that there is in God in the flesh. We have a crowd, a crowd of people gathered, a lot of people so that you cannot even get there. Here comes a handicapped man, a crippled man, if you will, being carried by four men, and they can't even get there. There are so many people. Now, if it was a small-sized crowd, you could say, hey, excuse me, we, we, we got somebody right here. For instance, if everybody was standing right here in the aisle blocking it so that, so that I couldn't even walk through, really, if a wheelchair came, we could say, hey, hey could y'all watch out? We're about to bring this wheelchair through, and, and we would make room for it. And that's reasonable, right? We've done that before. They are in that situation. Now, probably not a wheelchair, probably carrying this man on a four-corner type of, uh, of, of bench mat type thing, and, and they're carrying him, but that was not an option. Perhaps there were hundreds of people there gathered outside of that doorway so that when they got there, they thought, there's no way we're getting through there. We need a better idea. 
And if you don't believe that that was probably the case, then think about the extent that they did, the, 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 the issue. They went through the roof, which takes big effort. We're going to talk about that in a second. But you see the, their commitment there. But this crowd was so large, they could not get through the door to get to Jesus. And yet, Jesus was preaching the word to them. But it's easy to be a part of the crowd and not be committed to Jesus. Crowds love to follow the commotion. You know that, right? I remember when I was in high school and a fight would break out on campus. Within like seconds, there would be like 100 people gathered around in a circle watching. Crowds love to go to where the action is. And with Jesus, this is the same thing. We have throughout the Bible crowds following him. And yet, Jesus almost never seems to put much preference on the crowd Jesus wants to say to the crowd is anybody in there really committed I remember in John chapter 6 verse 66 because it's 666 John 666 it says that the crowds many of the crowds decided that day to stop following him and it says many left him and turned back and Jesus in John 666 doesn't even say anything to them he turns to those who have not left that were still there and says, do y'all want to leave too? Jesus seems to not be bothered with wanting to control the crowd. Jesus seems to want to look the people in the eye that will look him in the eye and say, will you give your life for me? Do you understand that I laid down my life for the forgiveness of sins and that you can be with God? Will you follow me? And there are people who will say yes. There are people with the sacrifice of the blood of Jesus on the cross who want to look him right back in the eye and say, yes, I will lay down my life for you. Yes, I will go where you will send me. Yes, don't associate me with the crowd, but associate me with the committed. And there are those. And Jesus seems to always be drawing this out. Louisville's very own Kyle Eidelman, who you've heard of, I'm sure, the pastor of Southeast Christian, has written a book that is very good called Not a Fan. If you've not read Not a Fan, it's a small little book. It's a good one. He takes up this subject in the whole thing, to not be a part of the crowd, but be a part of the committed. He says, I'm not a fan of Jesus, as I am a fan of uh, the Louisville Cardinals or the K Kentucky Wildcats. I don't know which one he likes. But he says, I'm not a fan of Jesus. I am a follower of Jesus. Here's what he says. Kyle Eidelman. The biggest threat to the church today is fans who call themselves Christian. But they aren't actually interested in following Christ. They want to be close enough to Jesus to get all the benefits, but not so close that it requires anything from them. Kyle Eidemann, Southeast Christian, 30,000 people on a Sunday, says. They want to be close enough to Jesus to get all the benefits, namely heaven, but not so close that it requires anything from them. Mark wants us to see that there is a crowd there, but you and I are not to think that the crowd is necessarily a good thing. The more and more that we have people who want to be a part of the crowd but don't want to be a part of the committed, the more bothersome it gets to me. But Jesus addresses the crowd. Jesus addresses the crowd, and it tells us very clearly, I'm thankful that Mark does this, and he says that Jesus was preaching the word to them. Make no mistake about it, because people will often try to tell you some things about Jesus without telling you everything about Jesus. Jesus was incredibly committed to preaching the word of God. 
Jesus came to fulfill the word of God by living out the word of God and proclaiming the word of God. You see that in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. He came proclaiming the gospel of God. He said the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the message of Jesus Christ. We need to know that Jesus was committed to the word. When a crowd has gathered here in the home, it says he was committed to, to he was speaking the word to them. So we see the crowd and yet how Jesus addresses them. But then secondly, we see the cripple and what Jesus says there. Verse 3 says that they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. So four people carrying a paralyzed man. So now you have five people here. They're trying to come to Jesus. Verse 4, when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. Removed the roof above him. Now, If you live in a big old two-story house, you're thinking, how in the world would they have done this? If your roof is shaped like that, you're thinking, how in the world would they have done this? Well, in Israel, houses are a little bit different than they are here, right? They're square and they're boxy, and oftentimes, the roof is flat and used more so like a deck. Like you think of being outside on a deck, they go up on top of the house on the roof. There are many passages in scriptures where it talks about proclaiming it from the rooftops, right? And you've thought, what does it mean to proclaim things from the rooftops? I've never been on my roof, and I've never proclaimed anything from my roof. Well, they used their rooftops as a deck. It was nice, and it was flat, and they could be there. And many of the homes didn't have shingles. Many of the homes didn't have concrete or anything like that. It was often just some boards laid flat with mud on top to keep the rain from coming through. You can travel the world now and still see many homes like this. And there were stairs outside, not very high, stairs on the outside, often some concrete stairs, stairs on the outside to just get them up to get on this flat roof. So they come to the house and they see, man, there's so many people there, a crowd they can't even get through. So one of the guys must have suggested, let's go through the roof. So they go through the roof and notice Jesus inside, probably not in a lazy boy, but Jesus is inside teaching them this huge crowd. And all of a sudden, can you picture it? Some dust starts to fall on the crowd. Jesus is all of a sudden distracted in his teaching ministry to the huge crowd that is now clogging the doorway. Some dust starts falling, and at first he tries to do what I do and tries to keep preaching through it, but eventually there's so much clutter falling through the ceiling, he's got, hold on a second, guys. What in the world's going on here? And he looks up, and next thing you know, four men are lowering down a handicapped man. Now, you're not at all to expect that they're up there with this big rope and, uh, you know, this big system for coming down through the sky. But you are to picture so maybe eight feet, ten feet, something like that, trying to get him down there somehow. Look what it says in verse 4. When they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening... They let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Can you imagine? This cripple guy has some good friends, does he not? I want to ask you if you have any friends that are persistent on getting you to Jesus. Can you imagine if you were trying to take somebody to meet Jesus and the crowd was so big you couldn't get in the door? I'd imagine that we'd have gone home and said, well, we tried. I've been to many restaurants where I walk inside and the parking lot's full and I need to recognize the obvious, but I don't, and say, do y'all have a wait? And they say, yeah, two hours. And when they say, yeah, two hours, you know what we do? We, we leave. You can't sit around for two hours with five little kids running around. You can't sit around for two minutes, really, but two hours, certainly not. And you would imagine, you would imagine that they would have given up, wouldn't they? Wouldn't you have given up? Have you ever invited somebody to church and they said no and you gave up? Have you ever tried to talk to somebody 
about God before and they weren't having it, so you gave up? What if the crowd was so full that you couldn't get in and the roof was clogged up like it was? It was keeping the rain out, but it wasn't keeping the believers out. They didn't quit. This paralyzed man, this crippled man, is to be so thankful for his friends. They did not accept no for an answer, came up with another way, got strategic to get him to Jesus. Now I want to ask you, why would they be so diligent? Why might a Christian person be so all out, wholeheartedly, sacrificially, hardworking, committed to getting somebody to Jesus? Well, only if they know that Jesus is God. And there's something that every one of us needs is God. And there's something that everybody in our life needs, God. And every friend and every family member and every neighbor needs God. And no matter what it takes, no matter how much we must give up of ourselves or sacrifice, we are to help our people come to know God. How obvious this is by the four friends and their effort to get him there. We know nothing about the beliefs of these guys. Notice this. We don't know what these guys believed, but we do know that whatever they believed caused them to do something. Right? Can, can you hear me? I once heard a, a, a man say that life is too sure, or short, life is too short, and hell is too sure for us to be lazy as believers. And these guys believed this. I don't know what these guys believed, but again, I know that they believed enough to do something about it. They, these guys believed enough that they would take action with it. These guys believed enough that they would not take no for an answer when it depended on their friend coming to know Jesus. And oh, that the church would really have that heart for the sake of our children. Our church had a softball game this past Thursday, and I love playing softball. In recent years, I found myself saying that playing softball was the highlight of my life. I'm sorry my life is that low, but playing softball in church league was the highlight of my life. And they were short a couple players, and you could say that they needed me, not because of my skills, but because they were short on a couple people, and I wanted to play. But guess who didn't get to play? Me. You know why? My kids had a ball game and a ball practice. Something's more important. I have a bigger desire for my kids to know me and be loved by me and to see my life and to see my life devoted to Jesus and therefore it carry over to them and that they would want to know Jesus. And so nothing, nothing, nothing is wanting to get in the way in my heart of my kids understanding God. And I take that even to softball on a Thursday night. Nothing wrong with playing softball on a Thursday night. I hope I get to play this week if things line up. But I didn't miss their ball game for the sake of my ball game. I want to be in their lives. Think about the devotion here, the action that we see. One commentator, Edwards again, points out here what is important about this faith. It says, faith is first and foremost not about a knowledge of Jesus, but it is an active trust. It is, I'm going somewhere, I am following you. It's an active trust that Jesus is sufficient for one's deepest and most heartfelt needs. Can you imagine all of their friends and families or what their moms might have been saying? Well, just come home, we'll keep taking care of him. He's been crippled his whole life anyway. He's learned to live with it. 
It's okay, he's happy like that. And on and on and on and on. All of the excuses and helps and false comforts that people would have given. But these four guys said, listen, there is no comparison to knowing Jesus. If we get this fellow to Jesus, everything will be changed. I've got to get him to Jesus. Through the roof we go. And they did. And Jesus recognizes it. Notice, I've said this before, I'll say it again. Jesus never comes across as uppity. He never comes across as a a, a rich preacher who's got his bodyguards. Hey, don't don't get in my way or don't don't mess up my clothing. Jesus is never that way. This teaching session in the home is rudely interrupted, if you will, by a roof busting open. And here comes a handicapped man. And Jesus likes it. Jesus admires it. Look what it says here in verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, okay, we recognize action. Jesus recognizes faith. And I want you to hear today that the real type of Christian that is a Bible-believing Christian has action following their faith. What can I do? He said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. I want you to see again, as I'm trying to get y'all to see week after week, that when you start to get introduced to Jesus, you must recognize that Jesus always, with a commitment unlike any we've ever seen, is about you knowing God. He's not wanting to teach you how to live. He's not wanting to teach you how to be happy. He's teaching you how to know God. Now, when you do come to know God, he'll teach you how to live. He'll teach you how to be happy and all those things. But it's about knowing God through the forgiveness of sins. That's always what it is. To the crowd, he's preaching the word to them. To the cripple, he's forgiving his sins. What would it profit a cripple if he got up, took his bed, and walked home without the forgiveness of sins? What would it profit a poor man to get a lot of money and yet never have his sins forgiven? And what would it, ha- what would it profit the foodless to have food if they don't have the forgiveness of sins? What would any of it matter if we all still die not knowing God in our sins to face the judgment and go to hell? What's it going to matter? Nothing. The issue is and always will be with God the forgiveness of of sins he says this to the cripple one might have been thinking well why is he saying that he didn't come here to have his sins forgiven he came here to have his legs fixed and only those who don't believe would have thought that only those who think life's about the now and short-lived would have thought that only those who don't believe in the next life would have thought that but he says to him in verse 5 son your sins are forgiven he speaks to the cripple So we see here that the cripple is addressed by Jesus to have faith. He does have faith, and his sins are forgiven. Jesus says he recognizes their faith, so we see that the the faith of all of them is a saving faith for the forgiveness of sins. We know that they had faith. Jesus recognized it. We know that his sins are forgiven. Jesus says that. So to the crowd, he preaches the word, and to the cripple, he forgives sins because of their faith. If you're here today and you're wondering how do you get right with God, I want to make it very clear, you get right with God by having your sins forgiven. Anybody in this room, anybody can have their sins forgiven, can be right with God. And it comes through the forgiveness of sins that God gives to people who believe in Jesus. Jesus came and lived and died on the cross under the punishment of God for sins. Yes, God punished Jesus by killing him on the cross for sins, for your sins, for my sins, for our sins, for the sins of the world. It was the punishment of God. It was the wrathful punishment of God upon Jesus for us. 
And if anybody would repent of their sins and believe that, they would not be punished. You can become a Christian today if you will believe that. You can hear what Jesus says even now. Your sins are forgiven if you will believe. If you have not believed before, then I ask you to believe now and commit yourself to following him. I ask you to stop being a part of the crowd and become part of the committed. But then we move forward to the critic. In verse 6, it says, Now some of the scribes were sitting there. Can you imagine? Notice that the scribes were not the ones who were late and now in the door jam. The scribes were not the ones who were late and are now standing in the yard trying to get an ear. They weren't late to the crowd. The scribes were the one who were following him every step of the way. They had gotten in the house. They were sitting down. They were all eyewitnesses on what he might say. The scribes were sitting there, and this amazing turn of events has them now questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They are partly right. They are absolutely 100% right that only God alone can forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. Only God. Listen, you don't need a man and you don't need a priest and you don't need a church to try to forgive you of your sins. You need God to forgive you of your sins. And he will. He will today. He will now. He will when you sin if you will turn your eyes upon Jesus and confess to him, oh, Father, forgive me of my sins. He will forgive you. They're right in that only God can forgive. But they're wrong in that Jesus saying this was blasphemy. This was not blasphemy. This was accurate. This was God forgiving sins. They just don't believe that Jesus is God. One commentator says that what began here as a heartwarming healing has suddenly become a perilous confrontation over religious authority. And it has. Our passage turns from sweet, awesome, through the roof, to now religious people are about to be arguing. Verse 8. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? We see here again that Jesus is God. They are thinking this in their mind, and Jesus knows it. Jesus addresses them about what their heart's feeling. Aren't you thankful that we don't have that ability? I have no idea what y'all are thinking right now. I realize that it's almost 12. I know you probably what you're thinking. But I have no idea what you're really thinking. And Jesus does. You know why he does? He's God. He's God. He knows right now what every one of you all are thinking. And when people are evil to you or wrong to you, when people hurt you, he knows what you're thinking. And when you're at home, sitting at home, or in your car, in tears, or crying out, help, 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 he knows what you're thinking. He's here. He's just healed this man of his sins. He has not healed him yet of his being crippled. He has healed him of his sins, and he perceives, he knows, that they are questioning him. Who does he think he is? He is blaspheming. Only God can do this, and so he doesn't wait for them to even speak up. He addresses it. He says, why do you question these things in your hearts? I want to speak for a moment about the critic. Church, can you hear today that it is so easy to be critical? So easy. It is so easy to be critical. I want you to hear, stop being critical. A great memory verse for you is Philippians 2.14. Do all things without grumbling or arguing. Do all things without complaining. It's so easy to be critical. Everybody is critical. You'll often hear us saying around here, be a part of the solution, not a part of the problem. It's easy to recognize the problems. Be a part of the solution. 
I love it when I go up here to Fairdale Youth League where our kids play just right up the street. And I, I love being up there. It's so much fun. Our kids are loving it. And they have this big poster right here on the chain link fence. One would think it shouldn't be necessary, but oh, is it necessary? It says, reminders from your child. Now, you know the child has never said this, but the child desires this. Five bullet points of reminders from your child on the fence of a t-ball field on the fence of a seven and eight-year-old machine pitch field. Number one, I'm a kid. Number two, it's just a game. Number three, my coach is a volunteer. Number four, the officials are humans. And number five, no college scholarships are being handed out today. Y'all are laughing, but this is needed. This is needed because the adults, the adults are so critical. I'll invite you any night of the week to walk up here, and if you want to see a little four-year-old be driven to tears by his dad who thinks he's already an all-star, chewing out the four-year-old in T-ball, if you want to see it, come any night. We'll show it to you. Stop being critical of your four-year-old. If your four-year-old's crying over T-ball, he's not going to play high school. He's not going to make it there. It's so easy to be critical. We had a game recently where I thought the coaches were going to fight and the parents too, and it looked like everybody was going to fight. It seemed to be the most tense game ever. As soon as the umpire yelled ball game, both kids on both teams just ran and hugged each other and high-fived, and it dawned on me the kids had no idea how tense this was. The kids are asking who won. There's some games where the scoreboard has to be taken down because it's 35-3, to and the game ends, and they're like, did we win? You didn't recognize that we never crossed home plate and the kids or their other teams crossing home plate every time? They don't. But it's so easy to be critical and get worked up over things, not only on a ball field, but at your kid's school or certainly in your church or in your neighborhood. Can I tell you today, church, if you're going to be a Christian in the world, stop being a critical person. Is there a place to criticize constructive criticism, it voice, uh, voice, your opinion, uh, voice your opinion? Yes. But be careful and prayerful and wise about it. And for every one critique you offer, why don't you offer 20 compliments? Be a part of the solution. And the more and more you live in the world, everybody's critical. We've given a voice to every idiot out there on social media. Don't be that way. Don't be that way. Edwards points out here, listen, the critical scribes, listen to me, have nothing, this breaks my heart. They have nothing to say to the crippled man, physical or spiritual needs. They don't have anything to say to him. The critical person often has nothing to offer. If you turn to the critical parent and say, well, can you come coach? They won't. If the teacher says to the critical parent who's sending the emails, well, can you come into class and be a volunteer for the day and help? They won't. The critical person often really does not have anything to offer. He points out that the scribes here who are upset with Jesus have nothing to say about the crippled man, and that's the issue. They have nothing to say to him. But so beautifully and powerfully and life-changing and life-strengthening to me, and I hope to you, he says, but Jesus, praise God, does have something to say to the crippled man. The critics don't. And all of the critics that you know who are offering their criticism about everything else in the world, and especially your religion, and especially this Bible, and your Jesus, and, and even our church, believe me, there's got to be critics out there. They don't have any solutions, but they have something to say. But he points out here that Jesus does have something to say to him. Jesus says to him, man, I see your faith. Your sins are forgiven. 
when you live your life at school, in a workplace, wherever, and everybody seems to be up in arms with their opinions, and heaven forbid they ask you what you think about Trump or Hillary, everybody has their opinion. When this happens, be comforted that you also have the words of God telling you how you can know him. You can be forgiven by God Almighty in his love. Look at verse 9. He says to them, which, or, or, why do you question these things in your hearts? And he says in verse 9, which is easier? Which is a great question. You and I don't even know how to figure out which is easier. I had to do a lot of studying, praying, and researching to figure out what does he mean by which is easier. He says, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise, take up your bed, and walk? Because he's not said that yet. He's not said that yet. So which is easier? And as I was reading, I was thinking, I don't know which one's easier. But I got to thinking about it. It's much easier for him to say your sins are forgiven because how are they going to know? Right? How do you know if somebody's sins are forgiven? Look at the person sitting right beside you. They sin. Are they forgiven? Look at the person sitting right next to you. Are they a sinner? Yes, they are. Are they forgiven? I don't know. So if I say, hey, Jesus forgives you, if you're trusting in him, that's pretty easy to say. That's why we say it all the time. We don't really know. You know what's hard to do? Just tell that crippled man, get up and walk home right here in front of everybody. That's hard to do. Jesus didn't think he needed to go there, but because of their critical hearts questioning God Almighty, he will. Look at verse 9. Verse 10 but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Let me stop there for a second. What do you think Jesus wants them to know today? That the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Listen, this is the goal of our church, that you would know that Jesus Christ is God and he's the only one that can forgive you of your sins. That's it. He says, so you will know that this Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He turns to the paralytic, he turns away from the critics to the paralyzed man, and he says, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. In verse 12, he rose, immediately picked up his bed, went out before them all so that they were all amazed, glorified God, saying, we never saw anything. And y'all, the world has never seen the real Jesus lived out by people who are not a part of the crowd but are a part of the committed, whose eyes are on Jesus. They know a lot of people that go to church. Everybody knows somebody that goes to church. But Jesus' call is not at all to be a part of the crowd, it's to be a part of the committed. Jesus speaks to the crowd by preaching the word. He speaks to the cripple by saying your sins are forgiven, that's the issue. And he speaks to the critics. He speaks to the critics there by saying, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Folks, the mission statement of this church on the front of your bullet is that we exist to proclaim Jesus. We want them to know Jesus has the authority to forgive their sins. And he can. And we don't want to be the people who get in the way of them knowing that. We want to be the friends who will carry them at whatever length it takes to get them to Jesus. What can we do? How can we help? 
Let me give you one little illustration that shows the huge opportunity and yet the struggle with it. In our country, there are nearly a million, 900,000 international students on college campuses. Nearly a million, 900,000 international students on college campuses. Easily, easily 70% of them never, ever go into an American home. They're getting a taste of America. They don't know our homes. They're getting a taste of this Christianity. They've never seen it. How do we expect people, how do we expect people to know that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins if we have not built a relationship with people that would tell them that? One international student in college from Japan says, In Japan, I never met a single Christian, so I had a negative attitude toward them, and I came to the States and still never met one. The Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, anybody's sins. American sins, Japanese sins, everybody in between sins they got to hear about it. I'm thankful for the cripples' friends who made sure at great length he heard about it. May God use us to help people hear about the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Father, help us to not be critical. Help us, God, to not be a part of the crowd. Help us to be believers that are committed. Oh, Father, we pray for this now in Jesus' name. Amen.